Good morning again, everyone. It is, it's good to see a lot more than I expected this morning with the rain and the wind and everything else. It's good to see you here, even if you're a little sleepy this morning. You know, it's, it's kind of difficult to adjust when the time changes. I do it enough during the year to, to get used to that kind of thing. It, it does take a few days to get back into the swing of things. Um, but you know, this week, as, as your bodies adjust, as you change with the seasons, it does bring some excitement. Because when the time changes, especially in the spring, it means spring is around the corner. Might not look like it today, um, but you know, we had 70 degrees this week. We had a taste of it. I was able to do some sermon preparation outside and soak up those rays, and it was just, it was nice. It gives you that renewal, that sense of hope, that confidence. I need that from time to time as life bears down on you. You know, as we get closer to the Easter season, I've begun to read through the Passion section as I do every, every year at this time. And I just marvel at God's redemption plan and what happens during that Passion week. You know, sometimes, as I mentioned last week, we need this renewal in our minds because our minds are fickle, where we waffle back and forth on different things, where we live out Romans 7. We know what we ought to do, but we, we don't do it anyway. You know, we hear the same messages, and time and time again, you hear the same truths, you read the same scriptures, and sometimes they'll stick for a little while, but then we kind of pull back a little bit. You know, sometimes when you hear that same thing over again, you automatically think, okay, I've heard this. Or it goes in one ear and out the other. Parents, how often does that happen with your children? Spouses, no elbowing. But look inward. How often do you not really listen? How often are you focused on other things in your life? You know, today we're going to come upon a parable that Jesus gives because the people are just not understanding what he is saying. Whether they're just not listening because they already have things in their mind or whether it goes in one ear and out the other. On three different occasions, Jesus has told the disciples that he will be killed, that he would have a tragic death. You know, this started in Luke chapter 9. Technology. I'm going to hit it again. It's on. There. Well, maybe you'll just have to control it for me, Paul. But he says in Luke chapter nine, chapter 9, Suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed on the third day, be raised. You know, when they first hear that, it's probably something like, Okay, sure, Jesus. Let's continue on with this ministry that we're doing now. You continue to say that. Then just a little bit later in chapter 9, I love the intentionality of how he opens this. Let these words sink into your ears. I know I've used so many variations of that with my children. <laughs> Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And then more recently in chapter 18, I got nothing. 
See, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. So Jesus has repeated this three times to his disciples. In your life, how many times do you have to repeat something before you begin to get annoyed? I'm not even talking about angry outbursts or, okay, you know, you start getting anxious or you start getting frustrated. How many times before you just get annoyed do you have to repeat something? You know, when it comes to children, many times we can go through our life and just assume they should know. And we don't take the time to actually explain things to them. But then when you think about some of your older children or even adults that should know better and you continue to explain something, how many times does it take? There's many times that Jesus calls people out in the scriptures for having ears but not being able to hear, for not understanding, for having little faith. Sometimes in my faith, I picture God in multiple ways. When it comes to Um, moments of realization that I have in the word. I can't help but think that God has the reddest forehead ever from all of the face palms. Like, really, Kurt? We've been over this. You know, I also picture God, um, just because it's my humor, I picture him having a knowing smirk. Like, oh, you want to do that, do you? Go ahead, let's see how that works for you. I say that because Sometimes that's how I parent as well. You know, I think of God, um, you know, being one of justice, one that loves his children and disciplines them. I think of, of God having mercy and patience, ones that says it's okay when you fall down and helps you up, giving you more instruction to push you along the path. So many different scripture pictures of God that we can use, and some of my own added in that show us God's eternal qualities, that show us more of who God is as he instructs us. And today we're going to see more of this patience as we read this parable where Jesus is going to address the coming kingdom yet again. It's a parable that is important for the Jews uh, as well as us today in this audience, understanding uh, what God has for his believers and his disciples So if you have your Bibles, you can join me in Luke chapter 19. I'm going to be reading verses 11 through 27 today. Verse 11. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable. Because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten ten minus and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him. And sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants, to whom he had given the money, to be called to him, 
that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in very little, you, should ha- you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I had kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, and you reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that everyone who has more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Father, as we go to your word today, I just pray that you would open up our hearts and minds to your truths, that you would help us to understand uh, stewardship, discipleship, uh, and this parable in a deeper way. In your name I pray, amen. So, This is a parable that is a timely one, considering what Jesus is about to do. Jesus is going to be expressing, again, this idea of the kingdom on earth and what that is going to look like. Uh, He's going to be talking about what he is going to be going to Jerusalem for. You know, he's about to head to Jerusalem, and the people have these notions still that as soon as he gets into Jerusalem, he is going to be the king, his kingdom is going to be established, and everything is going to uh, be kumbaya, I guess. You know, you think about the selfish interpretations that they're having about what they want Jesus to be. You know, they, they think, again, that as soon as he steps into Jerusalem, he will be the king. And they're on the right side of this. But this is also a parable that will fall in line kind of politically what has happened in the recent past with Jerusalem. You see, when Herod died, he did not have a will that was approved by Caesar because he kept changing his will because he was very paranoid. So when he died, his, the four remaining sons then went to Caesar to lay claim to that throne, to that kingship. Caesar agreed that it was going to be split into four areas. Archelaus was chosen to be over Judea, and he was a brutal leader. He took the throne in about 6 6 AD. People from Israel then went to Caesar complaining about Archelaus, saying, we don't want him as our king. He's brutal. Pick somebody different. So because of this, he did away with the kings and just made prefects to where Antipas was made as a prefect over Judea and that region. So we can see how this would have some political tones in terms of their recent history making that connection in the physical realm for them 
But then as the parable, it will switch to the future kingdom and the spiritual and talk about more of those eternal matters. Now, when we look at this parable, we want to make connections to the passage above it. So we are still assuming that he is right outside of Zacchaeus' house. He's speaking to Zacchaeus, to his disciples, to the crowds that were around him, the ones that were complaining and grumbling. And he's, you know, again, still on his way to Jerusalem. And we're going to make this connection here to verse 10, where it says the Son of Man. Now, if you remember, I guess it's probably been about a month ago, when we talked about the Son of Man. We made that connection back to Daniel chapter 7, where how that, the, that title referenced one who was going to be king of a coming kingdom, and he was going to have authority. So we look at how he says the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost in verse 10, and then we connect that to the kingdom talk in verse 11. Or just, um, sorry, in verse 12. No, verse 11, you know, the kingdom of God and how it was to appear immediately. So we want to make this connection that Jesus is going to be talking about this kingdom, um, and he's going to be verifying the timing around this kingdom, the appearance of the kingdom. He's going to be talking about the rejection that he's going to have from the citizens. And he's going to talk about how the disciples need to be good stewards of what they've been given. He's going to talk about roles of discipleship and a believer. So, and how that has to take place in between the Son of Man's departure and his return. So this morning as we dive a little bit deeper into this parable, we're going to reread some of these sections and, fo- and break them down a little bit at a time. So looking back at verse 12, he said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. So the nobleman here will represent Jesus. He's going to a far country. Now, he doesn't say, he doesn't name a city, because if you can name a city, then that means you can approximate the distance and know how long it's going to take. When you say a far country, it's a general term just to say, who knows how long it's going to take to get there and to get back. Okay, so he is already putting this uh, idea of imminence even into the minds with this parable. Um, I think of, of John 14. As Jesus says, you know, I'm going to my father's house, and my father's house has many rooms. I'm going to prepare a room for you. You know, he is going to receive his kingdom, and then he would return. You know, in in the parable, it is a certainty that he is going to receive this kingdom. This gives us hope and trust. There's confidence in the truth that's being proclaimed, that Jesus is going to receive this kingdom, and that he is going to be coming back. There's confidence in that return. Again, when you think back to 2 Peter in the early church, what were the scoffers saying? Where is your king? Why isn't he coming back? Patience. The Lord is not slow or doesn't count slowness as you think of it. The Lord is patient with us. That is all you need to know. Trust that he is coming. Trust in the Son of Man. Trust and believe the truth. He then calls ten servants to himself, and he tells them to engage in business. Now, ten is used here, I think, very purposefully. Ten is kind of a round number, which would encompass all of the disciples. Notice it's not talking about the twelve that is here. Also notice when he returns, he only asks 
about three people for the return. So in this parable, you see a lot of representation. You see some typology. So the 10 just encompasses that this is for everyone. It's not specifically for the 12 or the inner three. It is for all of those that are disciples. So we need to be aware of that as we're reading this word this morning. Now he gives them 10 minus. A minus or a mina is about three months wage for a laborer. Um, each person gets one mina. This shows equality. It's even across the board. Many times this parable is re- cross-referenced to the parable of the talents in Matthew 25. And if you recall, in that parable, the, the servants are given different levels of talents. You know, so if you were just to read that parable, you can think, well, it's not fair because they started with more than I did. And you can begin to formulate that. But, you know, when you take all of Scripture into play, you look at this parable and you see equality. You see how they start on the same foot. So what this becomes then is everybody, even if you are given things differently, even if you're giving things the same, will treat what they're given differently. Where the lesson then becomes about stewardship and not what you were given, but rather how are you using what you've been given. Now this, this mina, this sum here, it can represent the one life that each person has. The one life that has been given to you by God. How are you using that life to make a return on the investment for the master? Everyone has gifts. Everyone has talents that can be used for the kingdom, for the purposes of God. And we are to gain a return for him. Now, the results show that there are really only two outcomes, those who are faithful and those who are not. It's kind of a common division within the Bible where you see a lot of black and white. We see this a lot in the terminology of salvation, whether you're saved or unsaved, believer and unbeliever, a sheep or a goat, lost, found. You know, I think Jesus... Um, summarizes this type of thinking well in John chapter 12. As he says this, beginning in verse 47. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who has sent me, or who has sent me, has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. I know that this commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. You know, there is not this middle ground. There is sharp division within the Bible. Will you believe or not believe? Will you believe the truth or will you reject the truth? Moving on to verse 14. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. This is kind of an interruption within the text that we see. Uh, we see this attitude of the future citizens, or the citizens of the future king, I should say. They don't want him. 
They have their own plans. They have their own ideas. They want to live life the way that they want to live life. They don't like what this nobleman, what this Christ stands for. You know, this is an attitude that is prevalent even back then. You know, as we're learning in the Truth Project, as we're studying through that, we think postmodernism is a new thing. It's not. This type of thing of, I want to create my own truth, I want it to be my way, has been around since the time of Adam and Eve, since the time of Cain. But, even as they think this, there is absolute truth. We see this in the next verse. As Jesus receives his kingdom. No matter how much whining or complaining or grumbling that happens, Jesus has authority. He said he is going to receive his kingdom and he has received it. He is the king returning with this kingdom. Now look at verse 15. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. So as he returns, he's returning with a purpose. I liken this to kind of growing up. Maybe you've had this scene in your house. Um, there could be many different formats. Let's just say in my life, it was with my dad. You get up in the morning, your dad's getting ready to go to work. He didn't have a punch in and punch out time. So he never knew when he was going to come home. But when he left in the morning, he would give instructions. This chore needs to be done. This needs to be done. You need to make sure you do this today. Okay, Dad. Then he leaves. What do you do? Do you get it done now so you can just have the rest of the day to yourself? Do you think, ah, I got time. I'm going to go play video games. Do you procrastinate? Or do you just, does it slip your mind completely until you hear that garage door open and you think, oh no, that needed to be done earlier. Then you can try to fly around like a bumblebee and get everything done quickly and haphazardly. Or you can go out and try to distract him. Maybe he'll forget because he's had a hard day. And you're just so adorable and you give your puppy dog eyes and, and all that kind of stuff. That might work a little bit with our earthly fathers. But the next day we'll realize it didn't get done and we'll get back to that same conversation. But you look at what happens here. What Jesus is saying, as soon as he gets back, he calls for the servants to see what they've done. It's like he is excited. He wants to see what they have done. Now outside of this parable, What's happening here lines up with the judgment seat of Christ, which follows the rapture. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Leave a bookmark there in Luke. But turn over to 1 Corinthians. We've got a couple passages that we're going to go to. And the first one here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 I have on the slide, but the second one I do not. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 10. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, 
Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So, you know, speaking on that type of judgment, obviously the foundation is Christ. But when you look at verse 15, it's one of those tricky verses. You know, so many times we lump things together in our minds. We lump rewards with salvation. But, you know, when you, when you read this verse, to me, basically it says that it, at the end of my life, my life is going to go through fire. And whatever remains is reward. If nothing remains, I still have salvation. If by the skin of my teeth, so to speak. But our hope in salvation is in Christ, not our works. And sometimes we get that confused. Sometimes we go back to that in our minds. But you know, when, when, we, when I read this passage, the question that kind of stuck out to me, how does our salvation impact us? Are we just hoping to barely get in? Is that the impact that salvation has made in our life? Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm going to read the first 10 verses. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that we are at home in the body. Sorry. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So this passage has a good basis for the judgment seat of Christ, where it's not about salvation, but rather it is about the profitability of our lives for the master's gain. How has our mina been used? How has our life been used to glorify God to bring a return on his investment? Now, what is that investment? What is the mina? Well, for starters, it could be your whole life. 
You've been given the breath of God. How have you used that breath? How have you used your skills, your strengths, your talents? You know, you've been gifted by the Holy Spirit. How are you using these things for the purposes of God? You think of passages like 1 Corinthians, or sorry, yeah, 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, Ephesians 4, all that speak about the roles, the offices, the gifts of the Spirit, things that are used to edify the body, to build them up, to be united as one body, to glorify Christ. How are we using what we have been given to build each other up, to edify one another? All of these things promote unity in Christ, where we are moving towards the same goal. That same goal is the return of the Lord, showing him what we have done with our mina. In all honesty, it should be an exciting time. It should be like a five-year-old who comes and presents their parent with, look at my artwork that I did in school today. How excited they are to present what they have for the Lord. And we think about it. What is it that matters to God? Now, we are called to be stewards, to use what he has given to bless others. And he has given us everything. Your life, your finances, your job, your family, your possessions. It could be thinking, what finances? I'm in debt up to my eyeballs. My job, I hate my job. I can't stand going there. My family hates me. I've got nothing to my name. Rest, be patient, take a breath, be intentional, focus on today. How has God blessed you today? Look at those small things. You think about the next breath that you just take automatically. Is that breath going to be used to complain and grumble or is it going to be used to praise God? We have millions of moments every day that we could live for ourselves or live for God. Can life be incredibly hard? Absolutely. But you have the strength of Christ dwelling in you. The power of, of God that raised Christ from the dead resides in you. Jesus went to the cross to die for you. If that doesn't put a smile on your face today, oh, you have little faith. I am gloriously blessed. By the world's standards, I've had a couple of crappy years. But how can I be mad when God is so good? Do I hurt? Yes, but God is my comforter. Do I have bills? Yep, but God is my provider. Do I struggle with sin? 
Yeah. But he has redeemed me and he is my ever-present help in my times of trouble. We need to infuse the word of God in our lives in such a way that it spreads through our life where the truth impacts every facet of our life so that when we hear the lies of the enemy, we combat it with the truth. Doesn't mean it's gonna be easy, but you fight back with the word of God because it's infused in you and you realize how good he is. As stewards, we need to rest more in his word so that it is lived out in our life. Let's turn back to the parable in Luke 19. We see that the king calls back these three servants to see what they did. Let's reread verses 16 through 19. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minus more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minus. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. So these rewards of cities, this would fall in line with the, the thousand-year reign of Christ to where they are given authority in Christ's kingdom. It's kind of daunting when you think of that, reward of a city. How many of you want to have cities under your control? <sighs> I don't know. But you know, you think about the first servant, he has a tenfold return. The second servant has a fivefold return. And you know, we, th- we look through history. We look through the kingdoms in history. A king would frequently reward those in his service that have been faithful to him with status of power, with putting more responsibility under them. They would have higher positions of status. So Jesus is saying that there's going to be similar type of rewards in his kingdom as well. And these rewards, again, are based on their performance. You know, the biggest thing that we need to understand is this when it comes to works. You know, it's not, your works do not merit your salvation. Your performance gets you rewards based on your obedience to the word of God. You know, you can, you can fall into this trap pretty easily through our society because we are a works-based society. You perform well, then you get this type of reward. You know, you read books such as James, and you could think that you can earn your way into heaven. But we know the truth that salvation is by grace, that it's unearned, that it's undeserving. It's through faith in Christ, that he had to sacrifice himself to pay for our sins. You know, works are then an outgrowth of salvation. They simply are an obedience to God's word, to spread the gospel message, to be his hands and feet in this world. And we are rewarded accordingly. The rewards, they're going to differ. The rewards are not an equal thing. You know, um, believers, we are equally saved, but the rewards, not everybody's going to have the same size mansion. Not everybody's going to have the same size trophy. Right? Now, for the last section here, second to last section, verse 20 through 26. 
Then another come, came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I had kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, and you reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Then why did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken from him. So this is a servant who does nothing, literally. Nothing of eternal value is done with his whole life, with his mina. This is a big contrast to the first two faithful servants. Um, and it shows how a person can live cautiously, how they can live conservatively, how they can live fearfully. This is a type of person that goes through life not wanting to make waves, wanting to get along with everyone, wanting to coexist. But they fail to realize that they've been given a purpose from their master. Oh, a typical response from this type of person would be something like, well, I just don't have any good skills. <laughs> Think of Napoleon Dynamite. You know, or, you know, I can't, I can't get up in front of people. I can't share the gospel message. I can't know what to say. I, I can't sing. I can't preach. I can't, I can't, I can't. Where does our strength and help come from? Is it from ourselves or from the Lord? Infuse the word of God which says I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Fear is a powerful motivator and a powerful detractor. Fear is a powerful motivator. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. Where we understand his holiness, his glory, his majesty. If you recall, back when we were going through the Hebrew terms, when we studied glory, it means weight, it means heaviness, it means magnitude. And you think about the glory of God. How when presented with the glory of God, many people in the Bible either fainted or fell on their face. When's the last time you had that reaction? Forgive us, God, for not having more rug burn on our foreheads. Fear is also a detractor. It shows where you're focusing on your own strength. And at times, if you're doing that, sure, it's scary. But Christian, you're not on your own. And you're not to be doing this in your own power. The servant kept the minus safe because of fear of his master, afraid to even take a risk. To be a faithful steward, to be a faithful disciple, means you're going to have to take some calculated risks. You're going to have to take some steps of faith. You're going to have to step out of the boat. Even when everything around you is raging like a storm, your eyes are focused on Christ. Because he is your beacon. And you are focused on what he says and what he does. Knowing full well that he is the king. That you are safe in his hands. 
and that his love for you is such that he went to the cross for you even as you were still a sinner. Even if this servant had put the money in the bank, it would have got some sort of interest. Now I could view this as tithing. You know, even if you can just write a check. Send it to a missionary that's going out doing something. It's kind of a minimal type of thing. It's important. But at the same time, your knowledge, your gifts, your talents have been given to you to be used for his purposes. But the servant doesn't even do that. What this part shows, I think, is that just because God has saved us, it does not mean that we just relax and lie in wait for heaven. That would be being irresponsible as disciples. Not listening to his purposes, not listening to his commands, not using what he has given to us. As the mina is taken away and given to the other servant, it shows that there will be more opportunities in the kingdom to come to serve and to glorify God. Where if you are faithful and little, then you will be given much. How does a, a stewardship message resonate with you? You know, Jesus is continuing to stress to the people that his reign is not going to be immediate, but that he would return. We're still awaiting that return. We're still waiting for, for Christ to come back, for, for our dad to come home. After he has given us instructions, are we procrastinating? Are we distracting ourselves? Or are we busy with what he has given us to do? During his absence, as we're awaiting his return, as, as disciples, as believers, we need to invest what God has given us for his glory. Because everyone will be accountable to God at his coming. Everyone will receive what they deserve from the king. And this would include his enemies, those who have rejected the truth, those who have suppressed the truth, those citizens that did not want him to be the king. Let's look at verse 27 quickly. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. God is love. God is just. Equal in his eternal attributes. One, no one is greater than the other. And it's hard to balance in our finite minds at times. And many times we're, we're heavy on one side and then maybe we're heavier on this other side for a time, for a season. As we try to balance, as we try to understand this. But even if we can try to give up that control, God simply wants us to trust. To believe that he has this. Now these enemies are those that oppose God. They are not his servants. Notice, even the one that lost his mind, even the one that didn't um, invest it, is called a servant. But here, these are enemies. These are the people that would suffer the fate of slaughter. Also notice, this is after the judgment seat of Christ. 
pointing us towards the end times. In the parable, obviously this is a physical death that happens, but it, it is more representative of the spiritual death, the eternal separation into hell for those that reject Christ. As we close today, let me just kind of reiterate some of these points. Salvation comes through faith in Jesus. Rewards rest on the believer's service to God. Both come by the grace of God. Salvation and rewards are easy to intertwine, but they cannot be intertwined. They need to be kept separate for our understanding. Salvation is resting in what Jesus has done. Rewards rest on our obedience to God. And again, both come by his grace. Jesus had to die to fulfill the redemption plan of God. He has given us the Holy Spirit to teach us in all ways of truth, teaching us in the way that we should go, conforming us into the image of Christ. As believers, we need to be good stewards of that truth that we've been given, good stewards of the grace that we have received. Understanding that everything that we do and say is to be done with a mindset that we are bringing God glory. Reward or not, we should want to live our lives for Christ because of what he has done for us. Live in a way that reflects Christ to all of those that are around me. We are called to be good stewards of his grace until he comes again. So let us use our mina wisely. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your salvation and grace. Lord, without it, we are a lost people. I praise you for how you have gifted each one of us even at times if we don't feel like we are gifted and that we don't amount to much. Lord, we are your creations. We are bought by your blood. So there is value to our life. Lord, I pray that our lives can reflect you well. I pray that you would use the fear of the Lord as a powerful motivator in our life to where we understand the magnitude of sin in this world the separation that that we have from you because of sin and the hope that we have because of your redemption plan lord when we understand the gospel message when we understand our own unworthiness and how you clothe us, us with Jesus' righteousness. God, how can we keep from singing? How can we keep from praising your name? Forgive us for being distracted by all the things around us that we think are important, that we think take up so much of our life. Lord, you are what matters to us. We praise you for your forgiveness today. Help us to, to grow, to be better stewards of what you have blessed us with.
In Jesus' name I pray, amen.